Hello again and welcome. In this podcast, we discuss Out of the Bottle, the memoir of Londoner Graham Webb, an entrepreneur who overcame the challenges of spina bifida to become a hair industry icon. Join in our chat with Graham and listen as he reads from the book. This is a final bonus episode. Greetings and welcome to this bonus episode of Out of the Bottle podcast. Today we bring you a recording of Graham Webb's address at the University of Kent. As part of the esteemed university's open lecture series, Graham delivered a keynote entitled, It Can Be Done, From Humble Beginnings to Global Entrepreneur. Enjoy. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Can I welcome you to this open lecture in the, Kent Univers- the University of Kent Open Lecture Series? And we have a, a very special uh, open lecture here tonight. Uh, I'm particularly pleased to welcome Graham Webb. Uh, Graham is, is a person well-known in Kent and well-known for all, all kinds of things. But tonight he's going to talk about something very personal about his life. Um, Graham... Uh, is, uh, as I've always seen him, an an inspirational person. Uh, He began from humble beginnings, and I'm sure he could tell us about it, and he is now a global entrepreneur. Um, Having dropped out of school, uh, he overcame overcame the medical challenges of congenital spina bifida, and he has become a great success in the world of professional hair care. He opened his first London salon in 1969. And today, Graham Webb International currently encompasses four international academy locations, 11 United Kingdom salons, and a broad array of branded cosmetic products. He's been chairman of the Institute of Directors in Kent and served on the councils of the uh, Confederation of British British Industry, the CBI, and he was also honorary chairman of the NSPCC, Uh, in Kent for their false full-stop campaign. Graham, as many of you know, uh, is a Kent ambassador. He's been a Kent ambassador since 2002. And I'm particularly pleased to welcome a number of the Kent ambassadors who've come here to support Graham and to hear from him this evening. We're very much looking forward to hearing from you, Graham. The title of his talk is uh, It Can Be Done. Graham Webber. Good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen, Vice-Chancellor David, Sir Robert, ladies and gentlemen. As a former school dropout who's never taken an exam in my life except grade one piano and the driving test, it's a somewhat daunting prospect, but a real honor to speak here today in one of our country's top universities. I was very concerned a few days ago as I was unable to get off of the sofa to do the washing up, I had a severe attack of uh, male flu virus, known to ladies as a cold. <laughs> but I'm, I'm happy to say I'm, I'm in great shape now. 
I'd like to welcome my fellow Kent ambassadors, and I'm very proud to be one. I also sometimes seek some sympathy from audiences when I announce that I am a patron and a supporter of Charlton Athletic Football Club. In 1990, a line of hair care products was launched in America. Ten items, shampoos, conditioners, and styling products. Because they were heat activated, they carried names like infrared high protein conditioner and hot flash electric hue shine spray. They were all neatly packaged in crisp beige bottles with blue and red lettering. Each had a little union flag next to the name Graham Webb. That's me, the man on the shampoo bottle. The man who can truthfully say that millions of women think of me in the shower every morning. <laughs> the English writer and art critic John Ruskin once observed that for people to be happy in their work, they must be fit for it. They must not do too much of it, and they must have a sense of success in it. That observation was more than a century ago, yet it seems especially apt today with our instant communication and constant availability. This evening I'll be talking about defining and achieving success in this hectic environment. I'll tell you the story of my journey to personal and business success and what I learned along the way. And I'll share with you the four basic principles that helped me achieve that success. Let me quickly tell you a bit more about who I am for those who do not know me. I was born in South London of working class parents and grew up in a council flat. I dropped out of school at age 15 and couldn't land a job for the life of me. I had the lowest self-esteem imaginable. I was forever wetting my pants because of an embarrassing bladder problem. During the 1960s, yes, this is me, <laughs> I was a rice pudding salesman, a unisex barber, and a drummer in a rock and roll band. For a time, I sported a beard. Here it is. I sailed around the world three times. Very Austin Powers-esque, wouldn't you say? I went on to open my own chain of hair salons. I then expanded into hair shows and training academies in America. Eventually, I became the spokesperson for my own line of hair care products, sold in 24 countries around the world, and achieved, especially with my background, significant financial success. Not exactly the hair care's answer to Donald Trump, but like the Donald, I have written a book. I can proudly tell you that I've been happily married to my best friend, Mandy, for 33 years. And I'm the father of four lovely children. And that makes me a very lucky person. Those are a few of the highlights of my life over the course of my 60 years on the planet. I've met people from all walks of life. And while I'm proud of my achievements, success did not come at all easily. It took me years to figure out what my real talents were 
and how I could use them to the best advantage. Even then, just doing well wasn't enough to provide a sense of purpose, of ultimate satisfaction. I wasn't alone. I've met many other men and women who, while outwardly successful, complained that they lacked fulfilment in various ways. Indeed, I'm still meeting them. They aren't doing what they want to do professionally or personally. Or, if they've found their niche, it's too all-consuming. They haven't the time to let others into their lives. They all seem to have one thing in common. Their busy lives often lack some joy and some happiness. Eventually, I was able to work my way through these problems by the constant application of four basic principles. The first principle is define yourself in your own way. Don't let someone else tell you who you are or what you're capable of. It's also important to bang your own gong. We're not too good at it in Britain. And no matter what you do, it's important to know that it's actually okay to know you're okay and to believe in your own special talents, which we do all have. If you don't believe in you, why should anybody else? Now, here are the remaining three principles that I'd like to call my ABC. Anticipate the unexpected. Recognize and take advantage of the many opportunities that are bound to come your way. Position yourself so that you can go wherever you want to go, as opposed to standing forever on the lower run of the ladder. Balance your life. Make time with your family and friends a top priority, even if it means sacrificing a, a short-term game. You'll be very glad you did. Technology is also a wonderful tool, and online chatting can make it possible for us to be anywhere in the world and still stay in touch with family and friends and get our job done. Create joy and happiness. Live your life with integrity and share the wealth by giving back to the community, society and world. I think of these four principles as signposts on my journey in life. They've served me very well over the years, popping up now and again to guide me along from one destination to the next. My story begins at age 15 when I dropped out of school. Mind you, this was with the full approval of Northbrook School. <laughs> Written on my final school report was the following cruel assessment. Makes no effort, lazy, silly, bone idle, and apparently content to remain so. My parents took this news in their stride. Having had little formal education themselves, they saw me dropping out as a step towards my beginning in life. They assumed I'd get a job, just as they'd done at age 14. And after 62 rejections, I'm not kidding, 62 rejections, I did get a job. On my 63rd attempt, after my mum responded to an advertisement, I became an apprentice barber. 
not something I wanted to be. In three years, I would be a journeyman barber. I could then look forward to toiling away for the rest of my life in a world of Brill Cream dispensers, comb sanitizers, uh, razor strops, and asking men, anything you'd like for the weekend, sir? <laughs> Remember my first principle. Don't let others define who you are or what you can do. Well, I wasn't about to stay long-term in a job I really didn't like. I only took the apprenticeship because it was the only job I was offered. I knew that something different, something bigger and better, was in store for me. I just didn't know what. And while my indifference to traditional learning, plus that incontinence problem, had led me to leave school at the earliest age I could, I wasn't going to let the lack of formal education hold me back. Uh, to paraphrase Mark Twain, I wasn't about to let school get in the way of my education. I'll now describe the early steps of my career path. One is that although I was now training to become a barber, I'd always dreamed of being a drummer in a band. I'd spent my childhood pounding rhythmically on every open surface I could find. And despite my deformed feet and drumming attitude, lessons were out of the question. Paradiddles and crashing cymbals would not have been appreciated by the other people in my block of council flats. Although they did eventually break my windows so they could hear me better. Also, remember the second of my four key principles, which is to take advantage of the breaks that come your way, all of us. When opportunity knocks, answer the door. I completed my three-year apprenticeship. I was now 18 years old and a competent barber. I didn't care much for it, yet for the first time in my life at 18, I had just a tiny measure of self-confidence. I had just a glimmering that if I believed in myself and my abilities, others might too. At my dad's suggestion, I applied for a job on a cruise ship. I was hired as the hairdresser on P&O Himalaya, outward bound for Japan and Australia. I was following in my father's footsteps you see, my dad had been at sea as a ship's second steward from 1923 to 39. My dad was also a drummer. This is an amazing picture of him playing on the SS Maltan in 1932. I stayed on the Himalaya for two years, long enough to make three trips around the world. Along the way, the drummer in the ship's band gave me drum lessons in return for some free haircuts, and then P&O promoted me to a larger ship. That ship was still out to sea and wouldn't return for three months, so I was placed on leave. To stay busy, I took a job selling ambrosia rice pudding. Over the phone, supporting the real salesman in the field. Whilst doing this, I got my first go as a drummer with a band called The Planets. 
That name, The Planets, was totally inappropriate for the gigs we played, which were weddings and sort of church hall gatherings. Then, when my ship came in, the rice pudding company offered me a promotion to the position of salesman with a new estate car, which would easily hold my drum kit. Of course, I accepted the position. Just like that, I left the sea and hairdressing. I'd invented an entirely new life for myself. According to America's Webster's Dictionary, the listing drummer means a player of the drums or a travelling sales representative. I was both, and I was aged 20. I was too wet behind the ears to recognise it at the time, but a pattern was developing that I would follow for the next 40 years. I was a salesman at heart. Being a good salesman started building my self-confidence, hence becoming Britain's top rice pudding salesman. What wouldn't you give to be able to put that on your CV? <laughs> I loved the freedom of the job, which allowed me to indulge my time with my growing passion for drumming, and I seem to have a knack for spotting and taking advantage of opportunities to improve my lot in life. And I was willing to change the direction at the drop of a hat, even though this meant risking failure. I realized that the greatest risk of all is not to risk. I had the makings of an entrepreneur, Here's how the four principles I mentioned shaped the next phase of my journey. I was enjoying a drink at a bar after a day of selling rice pudding and struck up a conversation as reps do with the chap sitting next to me. I soon learned that he was the regional sales manager for Weller Hair Cosmetics. I mentioned to him that I too was in sales and Britain's top rice pudding salesman but I used to be a hairdresser and was familiar with Weller. He thought I'd be a natural for selling Weller products to hair salons. A few weeks later, I found myself being interviewed. I was offered a job and I took it. Goodbye, rice pudding. Hello, Weller. I also realized, as most of us do, that the opportunity actually lies in the person and not just in the job, or the university, or the college. I was headed back to my roots, so to speak. Selling Weller products to salons quickly rekindled my interest in the professional beauty business, which you might be interested to know, generated $59 billion in pure salon re revenues in the US in 2005, six billion pounds here in the UK. This was the late 60s in London, the era of unisex hair salons playing the latest rock tunes to the background music. Precisely my cup of tea. But I was still ready to jump whatever chances arrived. And sure enough, once again, opportunity came knocking. I'd learned that vacant space was available in a prominent location in Lee Green 
opposite my mum and dad's council flat. I decided that I would turn that space into the funkiest hair salon ever. And with the benefit of a timely loan of 600 pounds from an uncle, I managed to get two chairs in the front, even though there was a curtain, and it was like a bomb site behind the curtain. But the two chairs in the front looked lovely. I opened my own salon, and I named it Graham's Web, with one B. It was my little web, sort of my little hangout. And for any English majors here, I took the apostrophe out in the phone book so I'd be further up in the column. <laughs> I broke with tradition and hired a funky young lady as an apprentice to help provide the youthful image I was looking for, decked out in go-go boots and a miniskirt. She was sort of my curl girl. And this is me, believe it or not, with Lois and the chap who, uh, a few weeks earlier, knocked over Cassius Clay, uh, my client, Henry Cooper. Clients arrived in amazing cars to this upmarket salon, Jaguar, Rolls Royces, and I particularly loved the Morgan sports cars. Maybe one day. I had no business plan, no cash flow forecast. I had little notion of what it would take to succeed. But because of my experience as a hairdresser, I'd stopped calling myself a barber. And because of my success as a salesman, I believed it would work. Plus, I'd matured. I was 22 years of age. I was still drumming. I left the planets for other jazz and rock groups, even playing on BBC Radio 1, where I met all sorts of people, Jimmy Young, Dave Lee Travis, and suddenly I found that my music and professional work was converging. The day my salon opened, Travis wished good luck to the drummer Graham on the opening of his new salon on Lee Green Crossroads. This was live on the radio, a huge PR boost for me. I'm just going to have some of my Charlton Athletic water. Yeah? There's a director of Charlton sitting right here, the well-respected Derek Ufton. I thought perhaps I'd better bring, bring this. Next thing I know, I'm being interviewed by a rookie reporter whose story, drumming hairdresser rides a wave of music, appeared in the local paper. That reporter, Steve Ryder, is, of course, now one of our top TV sports presenters. I was suddenly leading two distinct lives, juggling drumming with my salon business and trying to make a go of it. It was jolly hard work. I was sleeping in the tiny, dreadful water tank loft above the salon, and I had to be at work early and presentable after late nights playing in the band. My incontinence was also getting worse. I had very little confidence with women, and I bought all sorts of books to try and help me because there was so such unreliability down below. And I know some of my male friends here will be interested to know that this is one book I bought, and it says everything men understand about women.
I was born with a small spot on my lower back that neither I nor my parents or doctors paid any attention to. No one suspected that that spot was a red flag of evidence for serious trouble. I had a hidden congenital birth defect called spina bifida, a condition that would cause me a lifetime of problems and have a profound effect on my attitude and lifestyle. Spina bifida occurs in one to two in every thousand live-born babies in the UK. The neural tube fails to develop properly during the first 25 days of pregnancy. This causes damage to the spinal cord and vertebrae. And 85 to 90% of spina bifida children also develop hydrocephalus, an enlargement of the head caused by a build-up of fluid in the cranium. I was so lucky. I had a so-called mild case. My spina bifida manifested itself through incontinence and funny feet. My feet tended to lock outwards at an awkward angle. They splayed out like this. And until I was 50, before I met a lot of my friends here in Kent, I would have a matte spray that I would always spray on the shoes in the loo so that the shine of the shoe wouldn't reflect the huge bumps and lumps sticking up through the top of my shoes. And once my secrets came out, it was such an amazing relief, and not to mention the major surgery, the 14 operations I've had. Let's just say that I was a poor runner and an even worse dancer. My spina bifida condition was not diagnosed until I was 33 years old. At school, I was known as the shirt because mine was always hanging out to cover the stains. 30 years before my official diagnosis, when I was 20 years old, a doctor informed me that my problem was psychological. That bit of misdiagnosis led to several years of psychiatric therapy and a huge supply of tablets to control my urination, neither of which helped me one bit. Plus, by my mid-twenties, I developed both gastric and duodenal ulcers, fretting over my condition while trying to grow my business, skipping lunches and dealing with the worry of bankers. When my spina bifida was finally diagnosed, I underwent a six-hour operation to untether my spinal cord. The operation didn't end my incontinence, but apparently it did prevent further nerve degeneration, and fingers still crossed on that. In fact, my incontinence got worse. It got so much worse that I began cutting up my children's nappies and stuffing them down the front of my pants. This would be my soggy little secret for the next 17 years. My incontinence obliged me to wear larger and larger nappies. And for years, when I appeared before an audience, I would notice the women staring at me, thinking, I suppose, that I was very well endowed, like Tom Jones. <laughs> 10 years ago, I went under the knife again in America for a lower limb rebuild 
and also to reshape my bladder. During pre-op x-rays, I was asked if anyone had spoken to me about my kidneys. You can imagine the adrenaline rush when somebody says that. Apparently, they were in the process of failing. The operation would allow me to catheterize myself. The doctors told me this would be better. Better, I replied in horror. Better than what? The operation was successful. I now self-catheterize six times a day. It's completely changed my life. And not to worry, I did already do it, and I'm okay for several hours. <laughs> the nice thing about self-catheterization is that unlike many of my aging male friends, like Bernard here in, in the audience, I never have to get up in the middle of the night. <laughs> I met my wife and best friend Mandy shortly after opening my first salon. She was working as a beauty therapist across the road. I would pop in occasionally to leave my business cards. We began going out, much to the disappointment of her parents. They saw me only as a long-haired barber from London who played the drums in a rock and roll band. I was not a promising prospect. However, I was not about to let them define me or my potential as a husband and provider. Remember principle number one, you define who you are. Mandy and I were married on June the 1st, 1974, in St. Paul's Cathedral. Not long after that, Charles and Diana copied us. Six years after we were married, I had my first surgery. The neurosurgeon pulled my wife aside and said, the good news is I think Graham will pull through, but I don't think you'll be able to have children. To which Mandy replied, oh, we already have two. We then had two more. You see, everything has always worked okay. You know what I mean, ladies? <laughs> Principle number two the A of my ABCs. Take advantage of every opportunity that comes your way. I've already mentioned my sense early on that I had the makings of an entrepreneur. However, hair would have to be my main commodity. I accepted this. I still had no specific goal in mind, no master plan. I was young, owned one salon, and was pretty much just reacting to things as they came along, but I'd already developed three characteristics that would help me get to where I wanted to go. First, I wouldn't allow myself to be put off by my detractors, lazy, silly, bone idle. Second, I would make use of every encounter and opportunity. Sure, I'd love to sell rice pudding out of my car. And third, I wouldn't be satisfied hanging around. Selling shampoo's great, but now I'm going to open my own salon. I discovered the first two of my four key principles for achieving success. Define yourself in your own way and anticipate the unexpected. It was now time to put those principles to the test. I expanded my salon by taking over space that was vacated next door. I then opened a second salon in Greenwich, and in 1975, a year after marrying Mandy, I opened a third salon 
in Bromley. I needed another bank loan, but when I approached my banker at NatWest, he said all sorts of difficult things like gearing, and he turned me down. But as luck would have it, one of my clients was a banker from Barclays who was willing to help me. But he said, you've got to go back to your current banker and explain. So I went back and I said, look, Dick, uh, that was his name, not just what I thought. <laughs> so I found myself suddenly with two banks. And for me, as a small and medium entrepreneur, it was great to have two banks because I could play one off against the other. And when the wages and payroll went through, um, it was easier to cope with than if I'd just got one bank. And I stayed with two banks until I opened in America. I now had a fully-fledged business with lots of employees. For the first time, I began thinking of myself as an entrepreneur. I needed to generate name recognition, and I began staging hairdressing shows at local women's clubs. This spawned a breakthrough idea. Why not open a training center for aspiring stylists? Once qualified, I could draw on them to put into my main salons. Thus, in 1977, I opened my first training center. This was an evolutionary step for me, and my mind was suddenly awash with business development ideas. Harking back to my days as an apprentice barber, I opened a traditional old-fashioned barber shop adjacent to my first salon, replete with red and white striped barber pole. Alas, this salon turned out to be a bad idea. My retro barber shop simply couldn't compete with my thriving unisex salon next door, and it soon folded. I'd miscalculated by trying to recreate the past instead of capitalizing on current trends and looking ahead towards the future. It was a mistake I would learn from and never repeat. But remember, the person who makes no mistakes doesn't make anything. I sold my Greenwich Salon to help fund expansion into Kent and opened salons in higher profile locations, Orpington High Street, Seven Oaks, Tunbridge Wells. By now I'd stopped being a hairdresser, I was a manager. And for the first time since dropping out, I went back to school. I enrolled in a two-year college course in public relations and communications. And I also joined and took courses at the Institute of Directors. The fact that I was a school dropout didn't mean I hadn't appreciated the value of lifelong learning. But where would I head next? I knew that I wouldn't be satisfied just as a sole proprietor of a few hair salons. I wanted to do more. All I had to do was to stay ready and to spot the brass ring when it came round and to grab it. I'd always wanted to bring my company to America with its vast economy and unbridled ambition. I was certain that America was where my entrepreneurial spirit and networking impulses would be encouraged. My instincts were right. America may not have been the land of my birth, but it has been the land of my rebirth. I thought like the turtle. You only go forward if you stick your neck out. I sent some quality photographs of my team's hairstyles to a top American magazine. 
This led to my team being invited to headline a big hair show in Minneapolis and possibly lead to the American dream, Brit style. This is my team and I with me in my Jean-Paul Gaultier appropriate coat. I quickly accepted the invitation and the reaction to our show was really enthusiastic and we returned the following year for the New York Beauty Show, the San Francisco Beauty Show, and then went on to Japan and Australia. Here's some of our models. Here's another example of how a chance meeting with someone you've never so much as set eyes on can be a golden networking opportunity. During a flight from Houston to Minneapolis, I struck up a conversation, as I often do, with the gentleman sitting next to me. He introduced himself as Charles Byron, the president of 300 mercantile beauty salons. With this critical information, I proceeded over the course of the flight to ever so subtly pitch that my hairdressing teams were presently touring America, helping beauty salons increase their dollar volume. Before we landed, I gave him a folder full of information and a stack of endorsement letters. There's a real art to networking like this. I was ready when the opening presented itself, and during the few hours it took to fly a 1,000 miles, I'd gradually educated Charles Byron about what a great job I could do for him. A short time later, my stylists were helping mercantile salons in Canada and America increase their dollar volume, and I had an agreement worth thousands of dollars in new revenue. Clearly, I was entering the entrepreneur phase of my journey. In America, many of the educational hair shows were performed for distributors of brand name products. This really nagged at me. Wouldn't it be nice if my shows featured a Graham Webb line of products? Wouldn't it be even nicer if those eponymous products were used and sold right across America? But to gain a tangible foothold, I would need to open a Graham Webb training center. And with success, a chain of salons might follow. I was already running a training center in Bromley, so why not open one in the States? A name for this institute came to me in a flash, the Graham Webb International Academy of Hair. And I geared up my UK to make sure I had a minder and a grinder. There are three people run businesses, the finder, who is the entrepreneur, the minder, who is the accountant, and the grinder, who is the operations guy. After clearing a, a path around many financial and managerial roadblocks, I opened my first academy in Arlington, Virginia, just outside of Washington. There are now four across America. America taught me about customer service. They do things better than anybody. And it reminds me of the story of the lady on Virgin who went to the back of the plane with her little boy and she went in one toilet and he went in the other. And when she came out, she noticed her little boy was still in his, so she knocked on the door and she said, Billy, shake it well and wash your hands and I'll see you back at the seat. When she got back to the seat, she was horrified that Billy was already there. <laughs> 
the chap who came out of the toilet thought, Richard Branson's amazing. He tries to think of everything. <laughs> the opening ceremony took place at the British Embassy in Washington in September 1987, 10 years after I'd started my modest training center in Bromley. And on the opening day, with senators and congressmen present, I received a personal letter of congratulation from the then Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher. The Academy became a big success, although the early going was very tough and nearly ruined me financially. My account was in the intensive care department of Midland Bank. In fact, I was very close to going under, like many people that try and open in America. But I saw a quote at Washington Airport that caught my eye. It said, success comes to those who hang on long after others might have let go. That simple quote gave me the courage to persevere. And it's one I use often with my children who are now building their own careers. Here's an interesting business point for any future entrepreneurs. If I'd have known how much this venture would have cost, there's no way I would have done it. And I would have missed out on a truly amazing success story. And with that, I want to tell you about a, name, a man named Robert Taylor. Robert Taylor started out as a salesman for Johnson & Johnson, the manufacturer of uh, healthcare products. He left to start his own company selling decorative soap to gift shops. He converted his soap into a liquid that could be dispensed from a bottle. He called it soft soap and made millions. Taylor was very innovative. He purchased Calvin Klein's failed fragrance operation and obtained the right to license under Klein's name. Calvin Klein was highly successful at selling jeans and had earlier run a controversial ad featuring 15-year-old Brooke Shields purring, nothing comes between me and my Calvins. So Taylor decided to market a perfume called Calvin Klein Climax. Taylor's wife wasn't keen, and she came up with the name Obsession. Robert Taylor eventually sold off his many enterprises, but being the entrepreneur he was, he developed a heat-activated shampoo and wanted a front person who could sell the product to professional salon owners. One of his colleagues, Craig Miller, knew me and remembered that I'd always approached my business dealings with integrity. So Miller mentioned me to Taylor, and Taylor asked Miller to call me. He did. We actually met years earlier at hair shows organized by the distribution business he and his family ran in Iowa. I'd kept in touch, sending the occasional handwritten note. Once again, unconnected people I've met suddenly have a connection, and seemingly random events fall neatly into place in the larger fabric of my life. This never ceases to amaze me. After realizing that I wasn't a hairdresser with a gypsy earring, gold medallion, and a hairy chest, Robert Taylor decided that I had credibility with the salon owners who would be asked to buy the product. The brand identity would be Graham Webb. The company would be Graham Webb International. Two Bs this time. 
Robert Taylor and I were now partners, and Craig Miller, our company president. Next thing I knew, Robert had me dressed from head to toe in what he thought an Englishman should look like. Fortunately, I convinced him eventually to let me wear my own clothes. We clinched the deal in Taylor's office, which was on the 32nd floor of an elegant building in Minneapolis. A trolley was rolled into the room. I expected coffee. I found shampoo bottles on which my name and a British Union flag had been pre-silk screened. I looked out of his office window and amazingly noticed the Redison Hotel where I had performed my first US hair show nine years earlier during my first visit to America. I can tell you that the feelings of deja vu and synchronicity were nearly overpowering. My linking up with Robert Taylor grew out of a perfect blending of my first three key principles. I'd never let anyone but me define who I was or what I was capable of achieving. So when it came time for me to be the spokesperson for an international enterprise bearing my name, I was ready and confident. I had over time built and carefully nurtured a network of contacts that would enable me to take advantage of the opportunities that came my way. Having made a fav favorable impression with Craig Miller, that had opened the door for my partnership with Taylor. And over the years, I was thinking big and acting global, even though I wasn't. Suddenly, one day I was there. Graham Webb International Products were launched in 1990. As a business strategy, we decided we would sell these products only to upmarket salons willing to commit to using and selling our products with retail marketing, our retail marketing strategy. One of our first brands was called IceCap. I called it that because when I came out of neurosurgery, they had me wearing an ice cap for the worst headache imaginable. So suddenly, without anybody knowing, we had a menthol product that made the hair, the scalp feel cold and tingly, and that was ice cap, but nobody knew why it was called that. I still had my salon chain in England, but eventually I was able to pass that to my loyal team. It was time for me to move on, but in a totally unexpected direction, one that now finds me giving speeches around the world and writing a book about my life to help others see that whatever the challenge, it can be done. I was also the BBC lingerie correspondent at that time, and this is me with a rather strange pose because clearly I seemed embarrassed to put my hands round the, uh, the ladies. We became the fourth largest professional hair care business in America and eventually distributed to 24 countries around the world. I'd gone full circle from working for Weller 40 years earlier, becoming Britain's top rice pudding salesman, and I can tell you that the check I received from Weller in 2001 when we sold to Weller had a few more zeros on it than that given to me when I sold their shampoo. So now I go around giving my speeches. This is 
at a music conference in uh, Vermont and my book signings and I was thrilled to be Libby Purves' guest on BBC Radio 4 midweek. In 2003, Weller was acquired by Procter & Gamble and today I'm proud to still be the goodwill ambassador of Graham Webb Products for Procter & Gamble. That's the story of my business success, but it's not quite the whole story. These are my current product ranges, a little different than when we had the flag. For me, true success has meant finding and maintaining an equilibrium between my business and personal life. Principle number three, the B of my ABCs. Balance your life and make time to be with family and friends. Like many of you, I found that when I was the busiest professionally, growing my business and making a name for myself, I was also the busiest personally. In my late 20s, I was running a successful business and married with three children. It seemed that were I to just hold Mandy's hand, she would become pregnant, perhaps to defy the neurosurgeons. Could I become a successful businessman and still meet my family obligations? I felt that I could. I vowed to myself that I would never let business get in the way of being a good dad and husband. Years later, I would decline to attend an important Graham Webb product launch, which, to use an American phrase, really pissed them off. But I refused to go because it fell on the day my son, my first son that they said I couldn't have, was to graduate from school. My oldest son, Rod, became a professional drummer. My youngest, Brad, has been a drummer from the outset, and my girls took a different musical path. My girls are now living in Los Angeles, singing and songwriting professionally as the Webb Sisters, two Bs, and they were the BBC Album of the Week back in the autumn, and allowed their old dad to be at Abbey Road Studio 2, the Beatles studio, when this wonderful orchestra played on their album, Daylight Crossing. My children all seem to have inherited their old man's genes. This is meant to move me on the drums. <laughs> For me, a balanced life meant that I shared taking their children to their various activities. And this is my 19-year-old son, Brad, who didn't go to college, but out of 700 drummers, landed the phenomenal role of drummer in the Blue Man show in Drury Lane, uh, London's most successful show. I strove to be equally supportive, you see, whether vocationally or academically, between Rod, who became a scholar at Balliol College, Oxford, and Brad, Balance also means that work is not always one's first priority. Find another passion and indulge it. During the years I was growing my business, I kept playing the drums. It really helped my confidence. And as a result, my family and I were fortunate to meet scores of famous and influential musicians over the years. This is the great James Taylor, who should have used my shampoo. <laughs> but whether it's playing an instrument, staying fit, improving your golf game, pursuing art or whatever, 
developing your creative side will automatically help define who you are and balance your life. My Pilates teacher, who helped keep me going, is in the audience this evening. Finally, my fourth key principle, which I've intentionally saved till last, create joy and happiness. To me, this means living with integrity and sharing your wealth by giving back to the community, society, or the world. A word about integrity. To me, integrity means being upright and sincere in your dealings with others. I do believe you climb the highest by staying on the level. Hair salons are highly competitive. One day you're in, the next day you could be out. Nevertheless, I never compromised my personal or professional integrity. I never stole a stylist away from a competing salon. In the hair care industry, a hot stylist can improve the bottom line dramatically. It's common for Salon A to woo people from Salon B in the same town, but I always felt that this would be morally dishonest. As to sharing wealth, I should explain that by wealth, I don't necessarily mean money. The wealth you share can consist of many things, including your time and talent freely given. Helping others makes for a better society and has its own reward. Be a mentor. Donate your time. Support the people and organisations that helped you along the way. The act of giving back will eventually come round full circle in the form of a gift to you. Spina bifida has possibly given me a compassion for others that I may not have otherwise had. Not surprisingly, much of my giving back has taken the form of contributions of time and money to disabled children. I'm a trustee of Kent Spina Bifida, was appeal chairman here for the Duke of York for the Kent NSPCC full stop campaign where we raised nearly half a million to help reverse an increasing trend of child abuse here in our county. And while chairman of Kent Institute of Directors, I invited the Save the Children Fund patron, the Princess Royal, to Kent, and as a result, led the IOD to raise £24,000. It was Kent's, Kent IOD's first fundraising event. I'll work towards my, my conclusion with some personal observations on success. My journey has shown me that we're capable of achieving more than we, or others, may think, and that children should be lifted up and not put down like I was, and that succeed breeds success. I've also learned not to be discouraged or complacent. There are multiple ways to achieve success. If a road closes, take the detour. Never assume that you can't do more. Never stop chasing your dream. Everything is possible. And don't be afraid to go out on a limb and maybe be a barber or something. Often that's where the fruit is. Also remember to always be prepared. Someone said, luck is what happens when preparation meets opportunity. Like the good salesman I am, I've, I always have promotional items in my bag. The bag I used to carry my nappies in, and now I carry my catheters. But I have a positive section too. 
You never know when an opportunity might come calling. Always follow through on your promises, though. Years ago, I met a gentleman who ran several hair salons in a small town called Williamsville. He said, Graham, you'll never come there. I'm right up in Williamsville. But I went. It took several flights to get to Williamsville, and the surprise salon owner thanked me profusely and gave me a gift, this unusual watch. It's been my watch ever since. I usually wear it everywhere I go. It, it proves that one keeps promises. I like the quote, when all is said and done, often more is said than done. Be a good listener, communicate openly, and don't hide behind pretenses. Tell it like it is. Most important of all, pay attention to family and friends. Being a good husband and dad, and a faithful, a faithful friend, have always been high on my list of priorities. As a result, I've been happily married for 33 years. And I have a, a ready access to a vast network of friends and colleagues ready to take the mickey out of me. This is, what it this is what makes it all worthwhile. Indeed, this may be what success is all about. And speaking of taking the mickey, I was threatened that I might be heckled here this evening by this gentleman who's sitting in the fourth row. I was proud to sponsor one of the Virginia Indians to come to our county this year. And I remember Bernard teasing me about it. And I thought perhaps you might like to see him as if he was a Mohican. <laughs> <laughs> and this is as Ozzy Osbourne. <laughs> anyway, these are the Virginia Indians that came to Kent. And oh, I did get my Morgan sports car. Well, that's my story, ladies and gentlemen, or at least a short summary of my story. If you want all the details, you can find them in my autobiography. It's entitled Out of the Bottle, and I'll be signing some right after my talk. A portion of the proceeds are going to Spina Bifida Children here in Kent. There you have it, the ABC's of success. After you've first defined who you are, and what your talents are. I hope the story of my journey has inspired you to believe that anything is possible and that true success, defined on your own terms, is there for all of us. In just a moment, I'll be happy to try and answer your questions, but before I do, remember that I began this evening by reciting the grim assessment my school gave me on the occasion of my dropping out makes no effort, lazy, silly, bone-idle, and apparently content to remain so. There's now this plaque in my honour at that same school, which reads, <laughs> presented to Graham M. Webb for outstanding lifetime achievement in recognition of his services to commerce, industry, and education. I'm very proud of that. Then in November 2004, I had a total shock when I received... I received an envelope from the Prime Minister stating that he intended to submit my name to the Queen for an honour. 
I'm very proud of my MBE, which I received at Buckingham Palace at the same time as Sir Robert in June 2005. The citation reads, for services to business and charity. Not bad for a lazy dropout. Thank you. information about purchasing out of the bottle, visit gramweb.co.uk. Profits from the sale of out of the bottle go to benefit a variety of charities, including those seeking to find a cure for spina bifida.